Michael, go ahead and put that picture up. Can you spot the difference between these two bodies of water? Look, look at these pictures. Can you tell the difference between these two bodies of water? Because both of them are beautiful. Both of them are unique. Both of them are visited by tens of thousands of people every year. They both drive not only tourism, but thriving industries that sell what they produce around the world. But one of them can kill you if you drink its water. Can you tell which of these is the Dead Sea and which of these is the Sea of Galilee? Here's a hint. The Dead Sea in this picture is the bluer, prettier looking water. Okay, what about on the next one? Can you tell the difference between these two? Which of these is the Sea of Galilee and which is the Dead Sea? They both look beautiful. They both look interesting. Because the Dead Sea, which is the one on your left, yes, your left, the Dead Sea looks beautiful on the surface. And it's even fun to get in. Because you get in it and you float. Right? I mean, you feel like you're just on a pool float, floating on the water. Uh, it's intriguing because it's the lowest place on earth, right? So it's such an interesting place to go. And if you spend just a few minutes in its water, all that mineral-rich water really does make you feel good. But it's lifeless underneath. And if you get even a drop of it in your eyes, it burns beyond belief. And if you get enough of it in your eye, you can go blind. It tastes disgusting. You don't want to get any of it in your mouth, but if you drink enough of it, it'll poison you. And as I thought about that this week, I thought, how easily are we deceived by things that look good on the outside, on the surface? They're unique. They're intriguing. They're fun. They feel good, even if just for a moment. But they hold death. They do not hold life for us. James has helped us discover how to approach the difficulties of life with joy, persevering through them as God in His wisdom uses them to help us grow in spiritual maturity. We've talked about prayer, about faith, about how we handle things when life seems unfair. And then James helped us identify the process by which our God-given desires are turned and twisted into temptations that deceive us into sin that like the Dead Sea ultimately leads us to death. They poison us. And that's why in the first chapter alone, three times James warns us not to be deceived. In verse 16, he tells us not to be deceived by, about who God is, about His character, that He is the good Father who only ever gives us good gifts. He, he leads us out of temptation, not into temptation. In verse 22, James warned us not to be deceived about who we are, about our nature, right? And then he says that if we just settle for hearing and receiving God's Word without actually following through and living it out, we deceive ourselves. We're not obeying it. We're not being doers of the Word. Good intentions are not the same thing as obedient action. Jesus isn't interested in people who on the surface know how to look good and sound right and say the right things and, and go to church and, and, and just that sort of thing. Cry out, Lord, Lord, but we never do what He says. He wants us to build our lives on the true, solid rock of His Word. 
And in today's passage, James is going to warn us against our own tendency, once again, towards self-deception. When we fail to gaze intently into that mirror of God's perfect law of freedom, when we live with a mistaken notion of our own goodness, we walk around a disheveled mess at best. At worst, we're like the king in the story about the emperor's new clothes who walks around thinking he's wearing the latest and greatest in royal fashion until he sees himself in a mirror and discovers the ugly truth. So many people today have convinced themselves that they're basically good people. They may even call themselves religious, spiritual, even Christian. They go to church when they can, they own a Bible, and may even have more than a passing knowledge of what it says. But they deceive themselves. Their religion is worthless, useless, like the emperor's new clothes. They think they're swimming in the Sea of Galilee, but they're really floating in the Dead Sea. And that can be a dangerous mistake to make. So last week we looked at being doers of the Word. Yes, we must first hear and humbly receive the Word before we can obey it, but we can't just stop with the hearing and the believing. We can't just stop at the head level. We must let it penetrate and take root in our hearts because only then will it bear fruit in our hands through action and obedience. Jesus put it this way in John 5. He said, You diligently study the Scriptures because you think by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me to have life. The solution isn't to read the Bible less, it's to apply the Bible more. If you're reading the Bible but not applying What you're learning to your own life, you're mishandling God's Word. You're misusing Scripture. It's not important for us to know lots of Bible trivia facts. It's not nearly as important to be able to explain the Deuteronomic cycle or the structure of the Psalms as it is to understand what God is commanding you to do and doing it, living it. The Bible isn't about information, it's about transformation. It informs us only so it can transform our lives. So how can we tell if we're deceiving ourselves about being religious? How do we know if we're really wearing robes of righteousness or we're still wearing the filthy rags of sin and shame? How can we, as Paul admonished the Corinthians, test ourselves to see whether we're in the faith? How do we examine ourselves? Well, James gives us the marks of a true faith by which we can know if we're really being doers of the Word or hearers only. Look with me at James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. These are not optional matters. We cannot ignore them and still say that we obey God's Word and follow Jesus. Our religion is useless if it does not lead us to be these kinds of people. Anyone who thinks otherwise deceives their own heart. Now, it's interesting that James uses this word religious and religion. 
That's not a word we like very much, right? I mean, I'm, I'm often saying, you know, I don't have a religion. I have a relationship with Jesus. We, we don't like that word religion. The Bible doesn't really like it either. It only uses it five times in the entire New Testament, two of which are right here. So it's not even a common word in the Bible. So why does James use this word religion? When we think of religion, we typically think of a man-made system of beliefs, man's effort to reach God. But the gospel is all about the links to which God made to reach us. Religion is about what we know, what we do, how good and righteous am I. The gospel is about who we know, what He has done, and the righteousness that Christ bestows upon us. So James uses this word religion to challenge those who think they're righteous to examine themselves. One of my favorite commentary writers on the book of James is a guy named Douglas Moo. Uh, He explains, perhaps James deliberately chooses such broad terms, meaning religion and religious in order to sharpen his point that anyone who has a claim to a genuine religious experience must submit those claims to these three tests that James is going to give us. So as we look at these, these three marks of a true faith, let's examine ourselves. Let's examine our faith and our lives and our relationship with Jesus. The first is that true faith tames our tongue. Look again at verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. The word control there is the word bridle. Now, the the, the tongue is an important topic throughout the Bible. Proverbs has a lot to say about uh, how destructive our speech can be when we argue, when we lie, when we insult people, when we gossip, when we we speak out in anger. I even read a few of these verses in last week's sermon. Jesus also often taught about how we're to use our words. He said in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak or tweet or post on Facebook. That's in the Greek. You have to read the Greek to get those in there. That's a scary verse. We'll have to give account for every careless word we utter. Now, James is going to deal with the tongue in greater depth in chapter 3. We'll get to that in a few weeks. Uh, And especially this word bridle. When he uses this word bridle, he obviously is trying to call to our minds this image of a powerful wild horse, right? That if you don't hold tight on those reins and keep it under control, it's going to buck you and it's going to run off, right? So we've got to bridle our tongues. Basically, James is saying, you have a horse in your mouth, you better know how to ride it. Or it's going to hurt you and everybody else around you. Think of all the ways in which our speech can go wild and get out of control. Think about gossip. Gossip has been called the art of confessing other people's sins. Proverbs 16, 28 tells us that a perverse person stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. And again in eleven thirteen it says, A gossip betrays a confidence, but a trustworthy person keeps a secret. Paul wrote to Timothy, a young pastor, about the gossip's He was having a problem with these gossiping women in his church. And listen to how Paul describes them. They get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. 
And in several places, Paul lists gossip right alongside murder and malice and adultery and lying. Speaking of lying, that's an easy one, right? I mean, we all know it's wrong to tell a lie. Jesus describes Satan as a liar by nature and the father of lies. One of the big ten, one of the ten commandments is we should not bear false witness, right? We should not lie. Proverbs 12.22 tells us the Lord detests lying lips, but He delights in people who are trustworthy. And Paul in Colossians 3.9 tells us do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practice. That imagery from last week about taking off old, ill-fitting garments, right? We've taken off that out-of-style with Christ's fashion of lying, we should not lie to one another. Then there's profanity and vulgar speech, which are rampant in our culture. It's alarming to me how much that kind of language has infiltrated television today. Even commercials are now using curse words. And news articles and stories, and and even our own politicians, elected officials, have potty mouth problems. But the Bible is clear that as Christians... There's no room for that kind of language in our vocabulary. A verse earlier in Colossians 3.8, Paul says, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. In Ephesians 5.4, he tells us, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Now, you may say, David, this is low-hanging fruit. Don't gossip, don't lie, don't use curse words. Got it. I'm good on that. But what about complaining and criticizing? Ouch, right? We're all guilty of doing that, aren't we? But Philippians 2.14 says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning. 1 Peter 4.9, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And Ephesians 4.29 is a great sort of catch-all. Verse. It says, do not let any unwholesome talk. And that Greek word for unwholesome can mean corrupt, harmful, foul. It's, it's just a good catch-all word. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. What a great litmus test for how we talk. The things that I say, does it benefit those who hear me? Does it meet their needs and build them up? If not, Paul says, you need to think hard about what you're saying. And I think this is more difficult for us today than it was 2,000 years ago because our culture not only revels in perverse language and coarse jokes and gossip. I mean, what is a tabloid but a newspaper full of nothing but gossip, right? It's in every newsstand, every checkout aisle at the store. But not only does our culture revel in these things, we're encouraged to have an opinion on every issue and every event that happens, and we're supposed to immediately have something to say about it on social media. And then we're supposed to go on to social media and comment on what others say about that thing. A proliferation of words just makes it all that much more easier to get in trouble, doesn't it? And to say hurtful things. And as we've all heard, the Internet never forgets. So what you text or tweet or post can come back to haunt you. So we need to be careful not only of our tongues, but of our thumbs and our fingers too, don't we? You see, Satan, the father of lies, excels at using our own words to hurt us. 
to damage our relationships, our reputation, our lives. And again, we'll look at this a little bit more in a few weeks, but to summarize James's point here, he's saying that our words reveal what's in our heart. Or as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, He said, Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. That's why false religion, false faith is so easily recognized by loose tongues that say hurtful things. Because true faith is marked by those who understand the power of words and who use them wisely and winsomely to build others up and glorify God. Now, another way our culture works against us, and you know, in addition to words and language, is this false dichotomy that's always put in front of us that pits personal purity against compassion for others. Right? Grace and truth, love and law, as if these are incompatible things. We're told that, we, that if we want to be tolerant and loving of someone, we have to affirm everything they say, everything they do, and everything they believe, whether it's right or wrong, whether it's helpful or hurtful, whether it makes any sense or comports to reality or not. If you're a loving person, you just affirm whatever it is. They even will tell us that Jesus didn't judge people. He came to love. Well, the Bible also tells us that Jesus came in grace and truth. And Paul tells us to speak the truth in love. It's a false dichotomy that sadly a lot of people fall for today. It's not either or, it's both and. It's grace and truth. It's love and law. James tells us that pure, undefiled religion requires both practical compassion for people in need and our own personal moral purity. God expects us to be truthful and full of grace. To obey His eternal law and love the lawless. To be pure from worldliness and practically care for others. Our personal holiness should match and reflect our public service. They're two sides of the same coin. This idea that some politicians have that we can believe one thing internally, personally, but advocate for something different externally is false. You can't do that. That's being a hypocrite. Or what James calls a double-minded person unstable in all their ways. So these next two things that James tells us about are two sides of the same coin. We must have both to have a true faith. The first one, so it's the second point here. We, our tongues must be tamed, but secondly, true faith moves our hearts to care. True faith moves our hearts to care. James tells his readers to visit the orphans and widows in their distress. Now, James uses these two groups to represent any and all people who are in need. Put yourself back in the first century. In the first century, there were no government programs. There were no social safety nets. And in a, in a large, very strong patriarchal society that ancient Israel and the Roman Empire were, uh, if you were fatherless or husbandless, if you were a, a child who was orphaned without a father, if you were a wife who was widowed without a husband, you were legally a non-entity. You had no legal rights. And so widows and orphans were among the most helpless people in that society. So I think we can broaden James's appeal here to include anyone who's in need. And of course that includes widows and orphans, but it also includes children who have been removed from their 
parents because of a dangerous situation and they find themselves in foster care. It includes people who are caught up in human trafficking. The internationals and refugees that are displaced. The drug addict. The homeless person. The single mom working to keep a roof over her children's heads. Who are the neediest, most helpless people in our community? Who are the desolate and the destitute and the distressed at our doorstep? And are we willing to open our hearts to care for them? Are we willing to open our hands or our wallets to help them? God is calling us to be selfless for the sake of the helpless. And remember, James is writing to people who have their own problems. Remember, these are people that are displaced by persecution. A lot of the people James is writing to are themselves struggling with poverty. And he's telling them not to forget to show compassion on others. Now that's true selflessness. But one of the best things we can do when we're in trouble is to help someone else who's in trouble. You know, and you think about if you've ever experienced grief, you know the power of coming alongside of and helping someone else in their grief. There's something about that kindred suffering where we share that burden together. We help one another. So don't wait until you have all your problems solved and all your issues sorted and all your needs met before you reach out a hand to help someone else. There are all kinds of people hurting all around us today and we should not turn our heads and pass them by. We don't need to be like the religious leaders who walked right past their fellow Jew who was beaten and dying in the road in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. We should be like the Samaritan. Be willing to be inconvenienced. To make a sacrifice to help someone, even a stranger, in need. 1 John 3 puts it like this. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. In other words, John is saying the same thing that James is saying. If you want to know that you truly have a walk with God, if you, if you truly want to know whether your heart is with Him, you're going to have a heart for those who are in need. You're going to want to share and help other people. If you don't, if your heart is closed up and hard and you don't care about those who are suffering, how can the love of God abide in you? But again, we must keep the practical acts of compassion balanced with the other side of that coin, third point James makes, when he says that true faith separates us from the world. So it's acts of compassion and purity. Those are not opposites. Those are not in conflict with one another. They go hand in hand. James calls his readers to keep themselves unstained from the world. Now, that word unstained can also be translated as unspotted, unsoiled, unpolluted from the world. To be unstained from the world is to maintain personal integrity and moral purity. It's to refuse to allow the world to set the standard for our belief and our speech and our conduct. It means we don't compromise with our culture when our culture is in conflict with Christ's commands. To be unstained from the world means we go against the flow because remember this world is not our home. 
Our citizenship is in heaven. We heard this in our New Testament reading this morning where Paul urges us, he says, in view of God's mercy to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. He says, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. James, in his letter, three times mentions the world. And just like with Paul, whenever James talks about the world in this regard, he's referring to the fallen world system that goes against God's kingdom. Right? James isn't talking about the world that God so loved He gave His only Son to save. He's not talking about the people of the world. He's not talking about the created order, that God created the world and that it belongs to Him, right? He's talking about this man-made, fallen system of beliefs that are wrecked by sin that pull us away from God's ideal for us. Those worldly systems are constantly trying to pollute our thinking and our speaking and our doing. And when they do, when we give in to and adopt those worldly positions and ways of thinking and speaking and doing, then what we do is we set aside the clear teaching of God's Word because we don't want to seem out of step with the world around us, right? And when we allow it to infiltrate and pollute our thinking, then God's Word is no longer the authority of our lives. It's the latest opinion poll. It's whatever's trending on Twitter. That becomes our authority. And we go along to get along. But not only is our thinking polluted, but then our speaking is polluted as well. We end up talking like the lost world. Because we'd rather run the risk of offending God than sounding different than our friends and co-workers. And so we allow the world to pollute our speaking. And then, of course, it pollutes our doing, our, our conduct, our, the way we act and live and order our lives. We order our lives the same as those who make no profession of faith at all. And we become indistinguishable from the lost people around us, right? Aside from maybe the most superficial of religious activities, we're indistinguishable from the rest of the world. What we do on a Friday night, how we behave at a party, how we conduct ourselves in business, where we go and what we do when we're out of town, we dishonor Christ when we are polluted by the world. You know, there was a time when it was well understood among Christians that to be considered different from the world was essential. They believed that only by showing these differences from the world could we draw people to faith in Christ. Well, sadly, that's been turned on its head today by a lot of Christians and churches. They think that the way to attract the world is to be more like the world. But here's the catch-22 of it all. If you try to be like the world, then what makes you any difference and why would anybody need to become a Christian? That's why we see so many churches that have given in and adopted worldly philosophies and beliefs are declining and closing their doors. Because why do I need Jesus if I'm okay the way I am? We can't hope to influence the world for Christ if we allow the world to influence our thinking and our speaking and our acting. One of the most telling and biting statements about this in all of James is in chapter 4, verse 4, where he says... Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Let that sink in for just a minute. 
James has set quite an agenda for us. Controlling the tongue. Caring for the needy. Staying separate from the ways of the world. James considers these three things so important he devotes the rest of his book to them. Really, in these two verses, James outlines the rest of his letter. In chapter 2, he talks in detail about caring for the needy. In the first 12 verses of chapter 3, about controlling our tongue. And from chapter 3.13 to the end of chapter uh, 5, he elaborates on being separate from the world. So, this is the agenda for the rest of our time together in the book of James. Now, is it possible to struggle in one or more of these areas and still be saved? Sure. I mean, how many of us have never struggled with what we've said? How many of us have never regretted something we've said to somebody? Anybody? How many of us are guilty of turning a blind eye to someone in need because we're busy? We're on the go. There's no margin in our lives. Somebody else will help that person. How many of us have allowed our thinking or speaking or our doing to be polluted by the world in some way? We all struggle in these areas. But James's point is, if you find yourself consistently not caring for the needy, not controlling your tongue, being polluted by the world, check your heart. Ask the Spirit of God to help you examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. And if you're trying to please God with religiousness this morning, listen, He's not interested. He's not impressed. He doesn't care whether you say the right words or you sit in a pew on Sundays. He wants all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your life. He wants you lock, stock, and barrel, 100%. Will you surrender to Him today? Will you give Him your all? The ugliness the warts, the, mess, the mistakes, the broken pieces, will you give your all to Him and let Him forgive you of your sins and make you new today? Someone here today may need to come and put their trust in Jesus Christ in what Jesus did for you, not what you can do, not in what you know, but who you know. Will you come today and begin a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? I invite you to do that. And for those of us that are Christians here, what is God saying to you about you handle your, how you handle your words? What is the Spirit convicting you of about your speech? Are there people you know or know of that are in need? That you've been ignoring, that you've been turning a blind eye to, that you've allowed some calluses to grow up on your heart. Maybe God is calling you to serve and to give in some way to help somebody. How will you respond to that today? What areas of your life are you allowing the world to influence? And what you think about things. And how you talk to people. And the things you do on a day-to-day basis. Are you being polluted by the world? This altar is open for you to respond however the Spirit of God leads. As we've heard last week and this week, it's about being doers of the Word. It's not enough just to hear It's not just enough in your mind to say, yeah, I agree with that. You've got to let it take root in your heart and manifest itself in action. What action will you take today and in the days to come? Would you stand and pray with me?
Father, we humbly come before You. And Father, I'm not perfect. None of us are perfect. It's not about our perfection. It's about the righteousness of Christ. And it's about allowing His Holy Spirit to mold us and shape us every day in this process of growth, of maturity, so we become more like Him. And that will never happen if we refuse to look at the ugliness in ourselves, if we refuse to look at the places in which we are failing, the places in which we are allowing the world to pollute and stain us. Jesus, You can wash those stains away. But we've got to bring them to You first. And I pray, Father, that whatever You're speaking to people today, whether You're calling someone to faith in You for the first time today, Lord, to be made new, forgiven of all their sins, or whether it's a person who's been a Christian for decades who needs to come with some worldly stains and lay them at the foot of the cross and experience anew and afresh Your grace and Your transforming power, I pray that we would be obedient. I pray we would step out in faith. Maybe it's to unite with this church. Maybe it's to say, I'm already a Christian, but I want to be baptized to demonstrate my relationship with Jesus. Lord, whatever you're calling us to do, may we be obedient today and in the days to come, Lord, because this doesn't stop when the hymn of invitation is over, Lord. It only begins as we leave these doors and step into a world that is so lost, so broken. There are people around us that are in so much hurt. You call us to be the salt and the light to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.